This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. The FBI is pursuing potentially hundreds more suspects in the Capitol riot, the agency's director told Congress on Tuesday, calling the effort to find those responsible for the deadly assault one of the most far-reaching and extensive investigation in the Bureau's history. We've already arrested close to 500, and we have hundreds of investigations that are still ongoing beyond those 500. Christopher A. Ray, the FBI director, told the House Oversight Committee. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about the FBI's work leading up to and following the siege here at the Capitol on January 6th. It's been more than five months since the violence and destruction of that day, and I'm no less appalled today than I was then and no less determined to do our part to make sure that it never happens again. Through the dogged work of FBI agents, analysts, and professionals working alongside federal, state, and local partners, we've been able to make close to 500 arrests so far with more sure to come. His assurances of how seriously the agency was taking the attack by a pro-Trump mob came as lawmakers pressed him and military commanders on why they did not do more to prevent the siege, despite threats from extremists to commit violence. The threats, I would say, were everywhere, said Representative Carolyn B. Maloney, a New York Democrat who is the chairperson of the Oversight Committee. The system was blinking red. Director Ray, we now know that the attacks were planned out in the open on popular social media platforms like Parler and Telegram. Among thousands of violent uh, messages, there were messages saying, quote, if that they certified, quote, if they certify Biden, we will storm Capitol Hill executions on the steps. Also, uh, wide social media activity included posts discussing specific details ahead of the attack, ranging from maps with layouts of the Capitol complex and construction plans for the gallows. Miss Maloney confronted Mr. Ray with messages from the social media site Parlor, which she said referred threats of violence to the FBI more than 50 times before the attack on January 6th. One message, which Ms. Maloney said Parler had sent to an FBI liaison on January 2nd, was from a poster who warned, don't be surprised if we take the Capitol building. And Trump needs us to cause chaos to enact the Insurrection Act. In hearings before two congressional committees on Tuesday, lawmakers sought new information about the security failures that helped lead to the violence. My, my, my. My colleagues across the aisle going to find themselves in a bind this year because we're going to investigate. We're going to investigate what exactly did happen leading up to January the 6th. You'd have had to be living under a rock in America to not know that there was potential for violence, riot, and mob behavior on January the 6th. Anybody with an ounce of common sense and any kind of connection to the street knew that that was a potential. The United States Capitol Police received intelligence from numerous law enforcement and intelligence services which clearly indicated the likely a likelihood of violence on January 6th, and they failed to adequately prepare. Let's look at why. At one hearing, Ms. Maloney presented her committee's research into the delayed response of the National Guard 
which showed that the Capitol Police and Washington officials made 12 urgent requests for their support and that army leaders told the National Guard to stand by five times as the violence escalated. The crowd is using munitions against us. They have bear spray in the crowd. Bear spray in the crowd. Documents obtained by the committee showed that beginning at 1.30 p.m. on January 6th, top officials at the Defense Department received pleas for help from the Capitol Police Chief, Mayor Muriel Bauer of Washington, and other officials. But the National Guard did not arrive until 5.20 p.m., more than fucking four hours after the Capitol perimeter had been breached. We lost the line! We lost the line! on the attack, some House Republicans used the opportunity to try to rewrite the history of what happened on January 6th, downplaying or outright denying the violence and deflecting efforts to investigate it. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. I'm also criticized because I've made the comment that on January 6th, I never felt threatened because I didn't. I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement. It was not an insurrection. It wasn't an armed invasion by a brigade of dangerous white supremacists. It wasn't. Those are lies. On Tuesday, some Republicans on the Oversight Committee tried to redirect the inquiry into other topics, calling for investigations of Black Lives Matter protesters or the Biden family. I would love to ask about the Durham report, Hunter Biden's laptop, Hunter's business dealings in China, and a host of other things, said Representative Jody B. Heath, Republican of Georgia. Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots caused over $2 billion in property damage. It's estimated here at the Capitol, it was on January 6th, somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.5 million. Uh, the major cities' chiefs association said that during the 10 weeks following George Floyd's death, there were 500 and 74 riots, declared riots, with violence and other criminal activity. That's 57 per week. 
Americans lost their lives. There were, there were severe injuries, including over 2,000 law enforcement. Uh, and yet the Democratic Party to this day has yet to even hold a single hearing on the BLM and Antifa riots. It's stunning to me. Many of my Democratic colleagues pretend that the chaos never happened. Uh, others promoted actually and encouraged it. In addition, Fox News boogeyman Tucker Carlson threw gasoline on the fires of conspiracy with his baseless claims that the FBI was somehow behind the January 6th attack on the Capitol. What cranks and conspiracy buffs call a false flag operation. The Fox propaganda network's Tucker Carlson pushing a conspiracy with no legitimate proof that the FBI organized the January 6th Capitol attack. And the claim is already being picked up by some GOP lawmakers. Carlson knows this is catnip for the MAGA faithful, desperate to find another source of accountability other than the truth. Strangely, some of the key people who participated on January 6th have not been charged. Look at the document. The government calls those people unindicted co-conspirators. What does that mean? Well, it means that in potentially every single case, they were FBI operatives. FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, according to government documents. And those two are not alone. In all, Revolver News reported there are, quote, upwards of 20 unindicted co-conspirators in the Oath Keeper indictments, all playing various roles in the conspiracy, who have not been charged for virtually the exact same activities, and in some cases, much, much more severe activities as those named alongside them in the indictments. Huh? So it turns out that this white supremacist insurrection was, again, by the government's own admission in these documents, organized at least in part by government agents. It literally does not mean that at all. But that's okay. This was never about the truth. Let's hear some more from Air Carlson. So if you're wondering why they're always comparing January 6th to 9-11, there's your answer. They're using the same tactic. Keep in mind the source for the speculation is Revolver News, run by a disgraced Trump White House speechwriter, Darren Beatty, who was fired in 2018 for his appearance on a white nationalist panel. Here's what he had to say on that subject. But the American people deserve the truth about 1-6, not just for the sake of Ashley Babbitt, not just for the sake of the hundreds of people held in prison unjustly as a violation of human rights, but for the sake of the 70 plus million people who are Trump supporters or just against the corrupt ruling class who have effectively been labeled de facto domestic extremists by our own government. While the FBI is batting down these bullshit insinuations from nutjobs like Darren Beatty, they're also trying desperately to keep us safe from these extremist groups that people like Tucker Carlson do so much to promote and propagate. Key amongst their fears is the looming possibility of that adherence to QAnon were likely to try and carry out violence, including harming perceived members of the cabal, such as Democrats and other political opposition. There's an urgent new warning on QAnon this morning with the FBI and Homeland Security saying some followers of this bananas conspiracy theory, many of whom were involved in the Capitol insurrection, could target Democrats and other political opponents for more violence. 
comes is out of the White House. You've got the first ever national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, a new plan to try to beef up what the federal government's doing in response to this, something virtually every law enforcement agency says is not a new threat, but something that's just grown over the last few years. The FBI detailed instances where QAnon believers have turned to violence, noting that it had arrested more than 20 self-identified QAnon adherents who participated in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In in this report, it it talks about the shift from digital soldiers to real-world conflict. Now, digital soldiers is an expression coined by Mike Flynn, a big QAnon guy who's big at pushing that conspiracy theory and ally over the president. Um, And he talked about needing digital soldiers to fight basically this big culture war uh, over the next few years. Uh, But QAnon has unraveled. Q, the the secret government insider who is allegedly at the the center of this thing, who isn't really a government insider, by the way, um, hasn't posted in over six months. So as people start to realize that they got conned here, they're going to try to find rationalizations around that. And that's what this report talks about. It talks about the idea that while they lose hope, other groups come in. They say domestic uh, violent extremist organizations have tried to recruit these people who've lost hope in QAnon, but still want to fight those same battles, still want to say, hey, the world is run by these satanic cannibals and there's a great reset happening and something, something Tony Fauci and all this stuff. But they don't want to give up the ghost on that. They want to radicalize them. And that's what white supremacist groups have kind of like dived in on places like Telegram to go recruit those people. And here's where I get scared, folks. We're not dealing with differences in political ideology, no matter how extreme. These people are legitimately fucking insane, and there's fucking millions of them out there. But wait, there's more. Just in case you forgot the basic tenets here, they are. The conspiracy holds that a corrupt cabal of global elites and career government employees who run a Satan-worshipping child sex trafficking ring will soon be rounded up and punished for their misdeeds and that former President Donald J. Trump will be restored to the presidency. Here's Johnny. QAnon growth has mushroomed online with believers watching message boards for new information and directives from Q, an anonymous figure who posts predictions and tells adherents to trust the plan. But the arrests have not happened, and Mr. Trump did not return to the White House as predicted this spring, sowing doubts among some believers who once decentralized community is now a large, real-world and global movement. Come on, we just want to eat your skin. QAnon, in many ways, is no different than other apocalyptic death cults that have swept this country for half a century. It seems that every decade, there is a new Jim Jones, David Koresh, Heaven's Gate, Nexium. This shows us new with tales of abuse, death, and deprivation. The difference being that they largely existed at the margins. All they do is taking a drink to, take, to go to sleep. That's what death is, sleep. They come in here with a gun, and they start shooting at us. What would you do? Tell me, be realistic. This is America. This is not Australia. This is not Europe. This is not where a country overthrows a bunch of people, takes away their weapons so that the people cannot argue any issue. We'll title this tape, uh, Planet Earth About to be Recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. They were not celebrated. If you were a member of one of these groups or espoused their beliefs, you largely kept it to yourself. Well, not anymore. 
This stuff is metastasized on social media to the point where you can exist with other like-minded lunatics in a world that is built entirely upon conspiracy. Where everything you believe or you want to believe is validated to the extreme. I, for one, am extremely terrified of these people, worried that I'm on a hit list. But what can we do other than hope that the FBI does their job? I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fuchs Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Matt Shuham, whose work covering the extremist beat for Talking Points memo has been nothing less than extraordinary. The insider newsletter and blog network has been known for its aggressive scoops and muckracking for over 20 years and was a pioneer in the field of digital journalism long before its closest competitor, Politico. TPM, as it's known on the street, is freewheeling and aggressive with an ethos of capturing the world of politics as it's played, bare-knuckle style and behind the scenes. The result is the hiring and nurturing of vital talent who's focused on stories of great national urgency. Matt Shuham's focus since the January 6th attacks has been the extremist groups and their connection to the GOP and possibly former President Trump. In addition, he has followed the money to see how these groups fundraise and how they are supported. From criminal trials to their incursions into local politics, no one is writing better stuff than Shuham when it comes to the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the rest of these lunatics. He joins us on Mea Culpa as Congress begins to reckon with what happened that day and why. In addition, the country is now poised to face potentially more violence as these same groups are once again riled into believing the lies and false promises of their dear leader. So let's go now to that conversation. Your recent piece for Talking Points Memo details how members of the Proud Boys are muscling into Republican politics at the local level in rural Oregon. Now, it goes on to discuss how this is a larger trend going on across the country of fringe and extremist groups infiltrating the GOP. First off, if you would, discuss with me what's happening in Oregon and then Discuss with me what this pretends for the GOP on a more macro level. Yeah, thanks for having me on. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I've actually I've covered a few different stories in Oregon recently, but you're right. The trend has been the same where you've had sort of fringe and extremist elements try to influence uh, more mainstream politics. Uh, This morning, um, we published something about the Multnomah County Republican Party, which is uh, home to Portland. Basically, the party has split into two different factions. There are two different Multnomah County uh, Republican Party chairman right now or, or chairpersons. One of them uh, is sort of the more inclusive, sort of more uh, center right uh, group. And another is a little bit further to the right, a little bit more about identity politics. And the two recent meetings we reported uh, and Willamette uh, Weekly, a local outlet reported before us that the Proud Boys were there at, at this uh, meeting of the Multnomah County Republican Party providing security at the door. Um, excluding certain people from a meeting that ought to have been open. 
And when asked about this, uh, a member of that sort of faction of the party defended it, saying, you know, I have proud boys and three percenters that are, you know, at my beck and call and I can call them and they'll be here in a few minutes and we're not ashamed of our security. And but we have seen that uh, going on throughout the country, uh, in Nevada and then also in uh, southern Oregon, there's sort of a, a water crisis going on right now where there's a dispute over uh, irrigation water versus the Endangered Species Act. And in that case, uh, Ammon Bundy has a group called People's Rights, and they've sort of tried to uh, sort of uh, take over the discussion and make it about these are this is our water and the federal government doesn't have any rights to uh, keep it from us. You know, Native American tribes don't have any right to keep it from us. The Endangered Species Act doesn't have any right to keep it from us. Um, so, you know, for years I've covered uh, militia groups and extremist movements, but it has been troubling in recent months, at least, to see them sort of uh, go a little bit deeper into mainstream Republican politics. And what's the fear that you have? Because I'm kind of, uh, what would be the right way to describe it? I'm intrigued at the fact that they are involving themselves in local mm -hmm. politics. And why Oregon? Oregon, is a, it's a really interesting history. You know, I, I'm not a local. I, I don't know the, the full history, but the reporting I've done on extremist groups and everybody thinks of Portland as the super far left place. And it's true. There, there's a really rich history left this politics there. But there's a flip side, um, which is, uh, you know, these militia groups, uh, you know, Patriot P Prayer, uh, the Proud Boys, groups like that, that sort of are the uh, the antagonists uh, locally. Uh, and it goes back a long ways. I mean, in, in uh, the Klamath Project, the, the uh, water fight that I just discussed goes back more than 100 years of the federal government basically uh, chopping up all the land out there and irrigating it and uh, creating sort of a uh, uh, U.S. Uh, footprint on what used to be native land. And that, that extends to this day, this, this dispute over who has access to this water. I mean, uh, more broadly, I think it's uh, people know that when you show up, you have a say, right? And especially in local politics, it's all depending on who shows up. And uh, I think these groups have just uh, seen with their own eyes that if they get a foot in the door, they can have a real say locally. And then as you go on up, I mean, this is true at the the state party level too. In, in Texas, you had Alan West and Arizona. I've been watching the lieutenant governor of Idaho really closely. A lot of pretty extreme politics in really prominent places. Obviously, Donald Trump was the culmination of this, but I think he inspired a lot of people that uh, who didn't think their politics was sort of palatable to, to get into the game. Yeah, except the thing that, again, intrigues me is the fact that Oregon, if I'm not mistaken, is a democratic mm -hmm. state, right, with Ron Wyden as mm -hmm. the senator uh, there in, in Oregon. So how are the Proud Boys or any of these, we'll call them paramilitary militia Trumpers, how are they possibly believing that they're going to be able to create some sort of a benefit for themselves when they're operating in the exact opposite of a vacuum? I mean— they, they're definitely minority. The caveat to all of this is in super red states, you know, those the militia groups and extremists there sometimes just don't get as much coverage as they do in places like Oregon, where there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of street fighting and stuff like that. I do think I mean, the fact that they're not close to political power, I don't uh, think discourages them. 
you know, I mean, it's a small group of people in this case um, that can have an outsized influence. Uh, I mean, Ammon, Ammon Bundy is the perfect example. You know, he had a few dozen, a few hundred people in his various uh, standoffs with the government, ends up making national news. He didn't really face any criminal penalty uh, for it. A few people in his crew did for the Malheur occupation. But you can have an effect without being without being the majority. I mean, and also about Oregon, there are some powerful um, Republicans there. Cliff Bentz in the uh, congressional delegation and just in the uh, uh, Pacific Northwest uh, more generally have uh, Greg Walden, uh, Oregon uh, congressman. So there is a bit uh, there's a bit of a, a Republican delegation. And especially in the Pacific North- Northwest, there's a big power divide between urban and rural. So rural uh, Pacific Northwest for for a long time has had um, some pretty crazy politics. I mean, separatist movements, people who want to make their own states, all that stuff's out there. Right. But Matt, I asked the question not because of like, um, you know, with Bundy, where they were fighting with the, you know, with the mm-hmm. military and with the police department. Right. And anytime that there's a shooting, there's going to be coverage. It doesn't make a difference if it's Republican or Democratic controlled city or state. Right. Um, I mean, but here, um, not only did I say Ron Wyden, but there's also Jeff mm-hmm, Merkley. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, you know, the leading uh, another Democrat. And the reason that I just bring that question up is when you're talking about Republican politics, which is exactly what the Proud Boys are trying to do by infiltrating into the political system there with various different issues. And I don't know all the issues that you say. I'm sure some of them I probably even agree with. Yes, I believe everybody should have clean water. Makes no difference what state that you're in. But for me, I don't see the benefit to them trying to infiltrate local Mm -hmm. politics in a state that is so contrary to their position as they are the ultimate right, far right wing Republican MAGA mm-hmm, supporter mm-hmm. versus, you know, individuals like Merkley or, or you know, it's just to me, I, I don't see that being a smart right. move for them to go into. I think you would go into a state that is completely right. red and try to infiltrate yourself right. into local politics. Well, I mean, politics. so two points on that. The first is they, they are definitely in red states. And like I said, in places like Idaho and Texas and Florida, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and all that, they have a big footprint in those sort of states. So that is the first thing. And the second thing, these are localized groups. So, you know, if you're in Oregon and you have politics that aren't in the mainstream, not only in the mainstream of, uh, you know, Oregon politics, but even in the Oregon Republican Party, then what do you do? There's a temptation to link arms with these guys that that appeal to violence because, you know, maybe they say that's, that's the only way you can have a say in this uh, society. I don't, you know, pretend to know what these guys are thinking. Um, but I think if you're in a sea of blue and you don't think you have a political outlet, for example, I was uh, interviewing uh, a farmer in uh, Southern Oregon who's sort of taken up the Bundy cause. And he says, well, we're not going to get our answer in the courts. We've been in the courts for years and years. You know, we get our answer standing off against the government. So I think you're right. When you have uh, two Democratic senators and uh, in, a, in a blue state, the amount of practical political power you have is pretty limited. But the appeal of these groups, I think, is still there. I, I probably agree with you on that one. Look, folks, federal laws limit your liability in the event of credit card fraud. But there aren't the same safeguards when it comes to your retirement account. And many people have a lot to lose in their retirement account. 
Take steps to protect it by enabling two-factor authentication, consolidate retirement plans, update your password, and check your account frequently. We do a lot more online these days. Your information is out there, exposed. Unfortunately, cybercriminals are always looking for ways to take that information. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information. VPN to help keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out Tuesday's interview with astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who discusses his latest book. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show like the January 12th episode with Matthew McConaughey. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But, you know, you brought up um, Ammon Bundy. And I actually have a question that I wanted to ask you on this one, Matt. How does Ammon Bundy, right, the hero of the far-right militia folks, figure into what's happening right now in Oregon? Or do you think that that's some sort of separate thing? But regardless, do you think that there's likely to be another armed standoff with him or his mm-hmm. group? Uh, it, it's hard to say at this point. I mean... The, the, the prospect of Bundy getting involved in an armed standoff or even his group. I mean, he has a nationwide group called um, People's Rights that started out as sort of an anti-COVID rules group. They don't like mask rules. They don't like lockdowns. So they would stage protests in front of, you know, grocery stores or in front of public health officials' homes. So they use the prospect of a standoff with the federal government as a chip, right? They can, you know, they, they can put it in. They can play that. Uh, card if they have to, but they could also hold it out as a threat, as a way to get media coverage, as a way way to increase pressure on local elected officials or the Bureau of Reclamation. But, you know, I spoke to him in Bundy a week or two ago, and he said if if he was asked, he would go down there and he would support what they were doing. 
it's hard to say. I mean, especially in Southern Oregon, the farmers there are, are pretty sophisticated when it comes to the legal history of water rights. The Endangered Species Act is the law of the land, and they all seem to know that. Um, and so the, the question for them is, how do you go forward? And some of them that are opposed to this sort of Bundy approach say, well, we need to go to Congress and work out changes to the Endangered Species Act such that, you know, native tribes and endangered species and farmers can all have some of this treasured water because it's a drought season and climate change and all the rest of it. Um, and Bundy says, screw all that. You know, this is yours. The, the, the chances at this point it's hard to say. I mean, they've gotten the support of some local politicians. They've gotten the support of some local uh, irrigation board members. I mean, it's 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 unpredictable. The, the interesting thing about that Southern Oregon situation is there is an encampment. They literally bought land next to the canal gates that the federal government closed. So, you know, you have this lake full of endangered fish. The canal gates are closed, keeping all that water in there. And the threat is, um, and they did this 20 years ago in 2001, that they're going to break onto federal property and literally like <laughs> unscrew the canals. Um, so if they wanted to do something like that, they're, they're about 20 feet away from it. Um, so any day they could just decide to make that move. Which would then, of course, not play into the whole concept of wanting to have media coverage there. Now, despite that, that's what they did, what Ammon Bundy and his group did when they had the armed mm -hmm. standoff. Obviously, every single news outlet in the world was there videoing what was going on. If you're going to break onto federal land and to unscrew the canals in order to release the water, you probably don't want the media coverage, nor do you want the militia coming in in order to guard it. If they were going to actually try to accomplish something other than getting their name out there, maybe he just likes mm -hmm. the press. Maybe he just wants to see himself on the front page of the New York Times or on ABC TV or... CNN, MSNBC, or what? I don't know. Maybe that's what gets him off. But all I know is if you're going to do something, the stupid thing to do is to announce it and to create the media coverage around it. Because then they know exactly who did it. They know exactly where to go. And they know exactly who mm -hmm. to try to handle. I mean, I, I might disagree with you here because I think that is pretty much their last card. I mean, there's no way they're going to they're gonna be able to sort of surreptitiously steal water out of this lake. So the idea is basically, from my understanding of it, is, is to create a lot of hype, a lot of media coverage, and to basically dare the federal government to do something about it. Because, I, I mean, I, I, I do feel for these farmers in southern Oregon, and, and the extremists among them are, are a very small minority. Um, but, but they've had their, their water shut off, and, and there really isn't much they can do about it. I, the 2001 example is instructive. Um, there was a basically a bucket brigade. I mean, they made a 20-foot bucket that's still around, actually. They drove it all around the United States. And then back in Oregon, they had, a, you know, hundreds of people passing buckets one to another from this closed-off lake down to the irrigation canals. Um, but the whole point of it was to create a scene. And at that point, it succeeded, I think, and they, they fundraised a lot of money. Also created a lot of negative press because there were white supremacists and the, and the like, you know, in that crowd. Um, but I think I do agree with you. If, if you're Ammon Bundy, I mean, that's what his critics say. And I tend to believe him that he he wants to get out in front of cameras. He has sort of an absolutist ideology about the federal government. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of the card he's playing. I mean, and he's running for uh, apparently running for governor of Idaho, too. He doesn't. I think stand much of a chance, but um, he gets his ideas out there. And that's sort of the point. 
What? Why? Why did they shut the canal? You know, I don't know the answer to it's, that. It's, it's basically uh, the Endangered Species Act. So there, there are some uh, endangered fish. It's called the Klamath uh, River Basin. It's this. Uh, there's this big lake at the top called Upper Klamath Lake, and there are some endangered fish that that live in there. And if the water, if the rainfall from a certain year, the snow melt from a certain year is low enough, then those fish don't have enough water to survive, and so they need all the water they can get. In a normal year, they got more than enough water. And everything that the fish don't need goes downstream to farmers, goes downstream to a wildlife refuge. Um, but the Endangered Species Act, the way it's been interpreted in the courts, basically says if we're in a drought, if climate change limits the amount of uh, rainfall or snow melt in a certain year, it stays up there. So, I mean, the bottom line from what I've heard from uh, scientists that work in the area is there's there's just not enough water to go around. And it, it brings up the question, like, you know, as climate change progresses, there's going to be a lot more stories like this. Water wars, right? I mean, it's a, it's a precious resource, and the government has to make some really tough decisions about who wins and who loses. Yeah, it's going to be like a Mad Max scenario. Yeah, exactly. Now, Matt, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, look, the government has to figure this stuff out. This is obviously significant. You, you know, we need water to survive, no different than we need, you know, clean air to breathe. And they really do need to figure out if that's accurate, that there's not enough water coming down as a result of drought. They better figure out where we're going to pipe water in for these farmers and, you know, for the wildlife because I can understand they're being furious about it. Um, listen, I'm all for the fish, but I'm also for human beings being able to survive as well as other you know, wildlife. But Matt, you've done a ton of reporting on the Oath Keepers and their role in the January 6th insurrection. With the GOP push to memory hole the entire incident, Democrats are fighting a media war to keep the day alive and the wounds fresh so that the narrative does not change. If you would, discuss with my listeners what kind of evidence and charges are being levied against the Oath Keepers. Because I have personally heard reports of weapons being stored at nearby sites um, and bombs and that there was a much more serious plot behind the plot that the day being led by the Oath Keepers. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, the most serious charge that Oath Keepers face right now, there's 16, 16 of them in a single case docket. They face the charge of conspiracy, basically conspiracy to interrupt the congressional certification of Joe Biden's victory. Um, so, you know, conspiring to attack the Capitol and interrupt Congress. Uh, and so, you know, lots of people are charged with uh, assaulting police officers or um, you know, trespassing, obviously. But that one is the most serious when it comes to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, because it's about the planning that went ahead of it. So, you know, they, they all were texting and calling, allegedly texting and calling back and forth in the weeks and months ahead of this attack. Uh, and then when the day came, they were, you know, coordinating with each other. Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keeper, at one point texted a picture of one of the doors of the Capitol building and said, we need to get people over here. You know, he, he claims he didn't do anything wrong. He has not been charged with the crime. But um, so so that's the crux of it, that as opposed to some of these sort of one off people that, you know, they went there to support the president and then they saw a crowd going to the Congress and then they joined in. They walked through an open door. The Oath Keepers was, you know, we're there because uh, we're, we're uh, Trump supporters and we're and he's the rightful winner of this election. And then when uh, when everything sort of popped off, they were in a position 
to work as a group, basically. The, the thing that's come up with the Oath Keepers, the sort of secondary plot, is something that they've called a quick reaction force in uh, both amongst themselves, amongst the, amongst the Oath Keepers, and federal prosecutors have discussed this, which is basically they had a hotel room in Virginia full of guns, full of people, and uh, they were waiting for the word, allegedly, to join the fight. Um, so that's another aspect of pre-planning. Um, so when people talk about, you know, an insurrection attempt, that to me is what uh, embodies it a little bit more than somebody who may have, you know, a legitimate argument about getting carried away and following the crowd or whatnot. These are folks that, according to prosecutors, uh, had been preparing uh, for something like what happened. They said they were preparing for Antifa, but uh, there weren't any there weren't any anti-fascist activists on the street that day. And if you were preparing to fight with Antifa, mm -hmm. again, firearms, bear spray, zip ties, you know, metal bats and batons and so on. That's not the way I think that it was supposed to go. And I don't know why much of the media refuses to, abs to put absolutes onto this, mm. meaning, you know, they still sort of play it on the, yes, they, they, stormed the Capitol. They went there for bad purpose, but they don't really call it out. Now, if I was a writer in one of these newspapers, so on, I would just call it out. The Oath Keepers are full of shit. <laughs> that would be the headline of my, of my article. They went there for a specific reason. And let's stop, let's stop pussyfooting around this bullshit mm -hmm. because it is what it is. You don't go to the Capitol and you don't start looking for Mike Pence to kill him or Nancy Pelosi, or any of our representatives. You just don't do it. And then the argument by Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and so many of these other insurrectionists is that we were there in a peaceful, orderly manner. We stayed within the stanchions, and therefore we did not violate. We were not on the premises in an improper way. Well, where does that where does that line of bullshit come from? What legitimacy is there? And the answer is there is none. So why are we even fucking around and playing games here? Let's just call it out. The fact that the Republicans refused to even permit a January 6th insurrection committee mm. in order to investigate this. What is Joe Biden sitting and waiting for? What is Kamala Harris? What is Merrick Garland, our attorney general, doing? How about just do what Trump would do? And that's just to... In, you know, impanel a, in a special master, a special counsel, and do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And if the, Demo if the Republicans don't want to participate, as Trump would say, fuck them. Yeah. Right? Let's just move on and we'll do it ourselves. And if, in fact, that, you know, we come up with a determination, well, we're going to move. See, this is the big problem between Republicans and Democrats. It's a big problem between somebody like a Mitch McConnell and a Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi. Mitch McConnell goes right for the fucking jugular, right? He goes right, right for it. He's with, he's with the, the sharp knife, and he wants to cut your jugular. He's not there to play games. It's win at all costs. Mm -hmm. And then you have Pelosi or Schumer or, you know, whether it's Nadler or any of these, you know, they, they all get up and they say true, true things. But it's peaceful. They're going for your ankles, whereas Mitch McConnell is going for your throat. And there's a big difference, right? And it's about, it's about time that the Democrats start fighting back because this sort of nonsense that we're talking about here, that 
the Oath Keepers were there in a peaceful manner. They were there to protect the Capitol, mm. you know, from Antifa. And they were there because President Trump told them to do it. Well, that may be the only true statement that they say so far. That, yes, Trump told them to be there and Trump told them to storm the Capitol. I don't know. Do you need more of a committee <laughs> in order to investigate that? Right. I mean, it's I again, I get very frustrated because... What is so fucking apparent is just being ignored. Why? Right. I, well, two points on that. First on the Congress, then on the, the reporting aspect of it. I, I mean, I think you're right. And our talking points uh, memo where I work, we've we've written about this a lot where it's tough to have a bipartisan commission when one side, you know, spread the lie that inspired the attack. Right. I mean, if, if you tell people that the election was stolen and that the incoming president is illegitimate. And then a certain number of people, a thousand or so, take that to heart and storm the Congress in an effort to prevent that supposedly illegitimate president from taking power. Uh, you know, you're you're a witness. You're a party in this in this whole incident. So it's difficult, you know, to have a a, a, a normal congressional committee about that. And I, I think you're right about there. There is this democratic compulsion to go for bipartisanship, but. This is one instance in particular where it, it, it sort of just doesn't compute because, as you said, this was sort of a Republican-driven operation. I, I, but I do think you're right that uh, the people that blame Trump uh, or that cite his influence on them, they're probably telling the truth. I mean, they have agency in all of this as well, but that is a really revealing comment to make, that the commander-in-chief told me something. I I respect his authority, such as it is. And so I followed orders. I don't think it's going to work that well in court, but <laughs> it's something that they're out there saying. And it's even when people were getting arrested, they were telling FBI agents that. And even on the day of, people were screaming you know, into their cell phones, Trump told us to be here. On the reporting aspect of it, I, I do think there's a healthy compulsion that journalists have to respect people's innocence, the presumption of innocence, and to have an open mind about the possible story. Um, that said, uh, I mean, my colleague Tierney Sneed and I did a, a big, long six, seven thousand word story tracing the month by month uh, lie, you know, the big lie that it's now called of Trump saying back in September or whatever, the only way I'm going to lose is if it's fraudulent. And Donald Trump Jr. creating an army for Trump. And then as the weeks go by, you don't have any legal options left. So you start to, you know, get everybody emotional and then you start to plan the rallies in, in Washington, D.C., one in November and then one in December and then one in January. So it's a very it's a very clear path. I mean, speaking personally, reporting on this, I've r reported on militias and extremist movements for four years, five years. Even for me, it was difficult to comprehend on the day of January 6th what I was looking at. And even now it's difficult to comprehend. So I think some of the the uh, wishy-washy language is is reporters are human beings and it's difficult to put into words what actually happened. Um, but I think you're right. It's important to, to stare it straight in the face that this was an attempt to, you know, steal a second term and do it by force. Yeah, well said. Uh, you certainly said it much more eloquent than I did. And um <laughs> I appreciate you for that. Now, Matt, recent reports from the New York Times' Maggie Haberman asserts that Trump is telling everyone he meets with him that he will be reinstated this August 
and has become obsessed with these amateur election audits that are happening in Arizona and Georgia to vindicate his big election lie. What are you hearing from your sources about the former president's state of mind as its reported aides are growing alarmed at his level of delusion? And it, it is real delusion. Secondly, who do you think is behind these election audits? Mm-hmm. What's, really, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. Well, on the first question, I have a simple answer, which is that you're the closest source I have to the former president at this point. I mean, <laughs> I'm not I'm not sourced up in Trump world the way some people are. Um, but the, the the benefit about Donald Trump and covering him is he'll come out and say it. And, you know, he doesn't have Twitter anymore, but he has public statements. And and he says it every other day. This election was stolen. I'm the rightful president. And I think any glimmer of hope he has, any any lie he can tell himself that there's a chance of of some some part of his fate changing that that that's a part of his identity that he was stole that that this the second term was stolen from him and and i read your uh, book preparing for this interview and there was a lot of good insight in there about about sort of believing your own lie and i, I think this this lie about the election in particular uh was easy for him to believe because like i said he said back in september or whenever it was that there's literally no legitimate way that I can lose this election. Um, so when you tell yourself that for six months straight or four years straight or whatever it is, um, I, I don't think it's hard to believe that that he truly believes he sh- he's the rightful president. As for the audits, we have we have covered that fairly closely, and I think it's a mix of two things. I mean, it, one is is the pressure from Trump that it's out there publicly, and the second is the pressure from Trump voters. You know, people that believe what they've been told about about election fraud and they've been bombarding state legislators, um, people in, in Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia. We focus as the press a lot on the pressure that election officials have faced. And that's a, a big story. People getting threatened and getting stalked and that sort of thing. But if you're a Republican legislator at the state level, you're getting hundreds or thousands of emails from people that say, I elected you but I'm more loyal to Trump than I am to you. And here's what he's telling me. And what are you doing about it? And for some of these folks, it's, it's introducing new election laws that don't really have much uh, purpose except for appeasing Trump and appeasing Trump's voters. And for some of these folks, it's, it's these audits. And there are definitely some, some people in Trump world that have sort of taken up this banner, Lynn Wood, Patrick Byrne, Sidney Powell, the sort of influencers in Trump world. But I just think it comes from the top. It's that same dynamic that we've seen play out for years. Weekday mornings, the story begins in California. The Times, a daily news podcast from the Los Angeles Times, gives you a West Coast perspective on the story shaping policy and opinion. Join host Gustavo Ariano and a diverse range of voices every weekday morning as they cover the critical issues like only a team reporting from California can. From immigration to income inequality, climate change to racial justice, nativism to technology, the Times explores the contradictions and hard truths of the Golden State and the nation through a West Coast perspective. This is an amazing podcast, like The Daily, but with a uniquely SoCal flourish. And no one is more perfect than Gustavo Arellano, who is an institution within Southern California news. Through interviews and original stories, The Times, Daily News from the L.A., Times is the podcast you need to understand the world and how California shapes it. 
Because if an issue that's in California isn't in your town yet, chances are it will be soon. Expect award-winning reporting, hard-hitting investigations, and LA eccentricities from the biggest newspaper west of the Mississippi. New episodes of The Times are available every weekday. To listen and subscribe, go wherever you get your podcasts and search for The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Matt, what happens, what happens in August, on August 31, when Donald Trump has not been reinstated, that Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden do not leave the White House so that he and Melania can end up moving back in? What happens then to his supporters? Because when I use the word delusional in my, in my question to you, I truly mean it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, to be very honest, if Donald is actually as delusional as what he's making himself out to be. Mm-hmm. Now, when I saw Sidney Powell make the statement or Michael Flynn, who I'm disgusted by these days, you know, I used to actually like him. I had respect for him at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But he is like Sidney Powell, like Rudy Giuliani. They've just gone off the, off the complete deep end. But it, I put out a tweet myself saying, this is so delusional. It's no different than me going to sleep tonight thinking I'm going to wake up two feet taller at eight feet tall and get a billion dollar contract to play center for the New York Knicks, right? right? They could have used me, but that's neither here nor there, right? It's fucking delusional. It's not going to happen. And yet people are still buying into it. I mean, could you possibly imagine the notion that Donald Trump is in August. Why August? I don't even know why they chose an August date. It's just some random date <laughs> yeah. that is 60 days away from the date that they made this stupid statement, believing that their supporters and those that are listening have a very short attention span. Something I talk about in my book, Disloyal, mm. something Donald has talked about forever that the American people have a very short memory, meaning that they're not going to remember that he's supposed to be reinstated. And so a lot of people say that this is Donald Trump grifting, Mm -hmm. that this is additional way for the Republican Party to keep grifting off of their supporters for more money, more money. Then I saw this morning a clip um, on MSNBC of Ronna Romney McDaniel turning around and making some impassionate speech about how Trump is the rightful president, how he should, you know, um, be reinstated in August. And, you know, um, he's, uh, you know, he cares more about country than any other president in the history. And I sit there and I say to myself, because I've obviously spent quite a bit of time with with Rana. um, I know she doesn't believe her own bullshit, but they all have to stay on message. That's something that the Don is very big into, is staying on message. But before I let you answer the question, I actually have another thought Mm. that I haven't shared, but I'm going to share it with you. I believe that Trump is actually trying to create some sort of an insanity defense in the event that he's criminally prosecuted. And it's something that the chin, right, Gigante did, where he feigned um, insanity in order to try to stay out of prison. Very much like, and what really made me think about this is I was watching on television, the movie, right, it was on one of these um, channels, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, when um, R.P. McMurphy is feigning insanity, ends up in the insane asylum. And I believe that Trump is in his mind thinking that, well, it's better than prison. 
right? Mm. I'm not. I with Donald, you have no idea what to think. What's your thoughts on that? Let me let me go to the first part first. I mean, the significance of of this date that they've set that he's going to become president again. I have no idea. The only thing it reminds me of was when I first began covering Donald Trump in in 2015 and 16. He would always say, you know, we'll have that policy proposal to be out in two weeks. You know, everything was two weeks away. And the effect of it was, you know, short uh, attention span media uh, producers and consumers would say, Trump says in two weeks we're going to have a plan. And then in two weeks, nobody would remember. And we move on to the next thing. Um, I mean, there's a way that he takes out debt and he always moves the debt forward. And it's it can be a financial debt, but I think in this case it's it's a it's a debt of rage in a certain sense that he knows people are worked up and upset about this supposedly stolen election, so he says, well, you know, you're going to have your answer, but it's going to be two months from now, or it's going to be you know as soon as this uh, documentary by Mike Lindell, as soon as he releases that, it's going to have all the answers, and it has the effect of taking out that debt of outrage now, and then pushing it off into the future, and then when it finally comes, well. You know, nothing ends up happening, but we have this other deadline on the horizon that you just have to look forward to that instead. So I think there is this dynamic of him sort of uh, delaying gratification or however you want to call it, um, that he he keeps pushing that button again and again and again. I don't think he has much, uh, much else to offer his supporters other than the prospect that something on horizon will change. Because where things are now... Uh, I mean, he's out of power. There's a Democratic president, Democratic House, Senate. He's in a criminal investigation. <laughs> and he, he's in a tough spot. So what else do you have other than the possibility that something will change, no matter how slim that is? The insanity offense is an interesting thing. I mean, the charges that, you know, the, the, the criminal liability that he might face, from my understanding of it, seems like a, a tax issue. Um, so that's all down on paper. But I do wonder, and we have written about, you know, what sort of culpability he could have for the January 6th attack. I haven't seen anything from federal prosecutors other than a few words here and there that that he's going to face anything for that. But if it comes down to it, I mean, you know, may as well give it a shot, I guess. Yep, that and also trying to get Andrew Giuliani, right, to become the governor <laughs> right. so he can yeah. get a state pardon as well, along with his probable federal pocket pardons that mm. he and his kids are sitting with. But, you know, you bring up a good point about how Captain Chaos himself would create so much tumult, mm. you know, day in and day out, that after two weeks you forgot about what you were looking for. I just want to remind you of the very first big lie, what the, the first big lie that Donald Trump said, right? And what was the first big lie about? Obama's birth certificate. Yeah. Exactly, birtherism. And you may remember Donald came out and he made a whole speech about how he sent investigators to Hawaii. And you would not believe, you wouldn't believe the things we found. (laughs) You wouldn't believe what we found. And very soon I'm going to release all the information and you're going to be shocked. It's going to be amazing. Bigly, Kofifi, all that shit. Right. And that's what, and that's, did it ever come out? The answer is no, because here's the truth. He never sent investigators. Mm-hmm. I went into his office. I said, hey, boss, did we send somebody to Hawaii? Do we have anybody over there? 
He goes, now, nah, but wait till you see what happens tomorrow. Wait till you see. It's going to be on the front page of every single newspaper. It's already, it's already circulating through the press. So here's how I want you to answer it when they call you. Mm-hmm. And that's the game. The game is create so much chaos that people forget what they're supposed to be remembering. And if you ask any journalist, and I'm going to ask you, the hardest thing about covering Donald Trump was staying current. Mm-hmm. It was impossible. He mm-hmm. starts at 5 o'clock in the morning saying something batshit crazy. And then by 6 o'clock in the morning, when you'd finally got an article out, he says something crazier than the 5 o'clock. But then he gives you a few hours to get that done. And then by 1 o'clock, he's doing something again. Every time his fingers hit that Twitter, it was another chaotic episode in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, I mean, that, it was a learning experience. You know, I, I, I basically got my start in this profession in, in 2015. And... It was the process of, of learning exactly exactly what you just said, that you're being used, that this is a tactic. And like you said in your book, that, that your accomplices in his political designs, you know, and so that it took a long time for the press to learn that he can't set the agenda because that is the only move he has. At this. Obviously, when you're president, you've got a lot of moves. But when you're not president anymore and you're facing all of these challenges, um, and you don't have a Twitter account that makes it a lot, a lot harder. Then you got to get even more outrageous and uh, try to set the agenda. I don't think it's working as well now as certainly it did in 2015 or even throughout his presidency. I, I, I do realize though, I, I didn't even answer your question about what's going to happen after August, after he's not president anymore. And I think we could talk about. Well, he's not president. He's not Matt. He's not president now. Right. right. Well, it's it's the it's the allegation that he's going to be reinstated right. in August. Right. And so we can go back and forth about, you know, his 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 tactic of creating chaos and pushing the news further down the timeline. But when you take out a debt like that, if you're in business, you either declare a bankruptcy or you pay it off. But when you're dealing with people's rage, which is what he that's the currency he has right now. It is a really uh, it's really hard to predict. So I, I don't I don't have an answer for that part. Um, because it's, uh, you're, 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 you have to think about the political ramifications of angry people who don't think they live in a democracy anymore. And, uh, that's, that's hard to, hard to predict. Well, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I do believe in Trump's heart. He would like to see a second January 6th insurrection. Now, maybe not in the Capitol, but some other form of this paramilitary. That's what I believe he truly enjoyed watching these people storm the Capitol with Trump 2020 flags, MAGA flags, wearing his garbage Make America Great Again, you know, ugly red hats and shit like that, carrying posters all in his behalf because he's, a, he's just a sick man. But Matt, I do want to ask you, speaking of these election audits, you now have Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano saying that he wants to bring the same kind of examination to Pennsylvania. And you wrote in your um, TPM piece discussing his recent appearance on, <laughs> I mean, this is going to be a really a fair, a fair appearance, on Steve Bannon's podcast that the audits have become a kind of cause celeb amongst the far right. Unpack for my listeners, if you would, who is funding all of these audits? And are you hearing if it's all coordinated with what Michael Flynn and Sidney Kraken Powell are doing with QAnon? Yeah. So in short, we don't know who's funding all of the audits. We know, I mean, in Arizona, that's the, the, the only, um, you know, state 
legislature funded audit right now. So in Arizona, they have $150,000 from the state Senate. And then that was not enough to cover costs at all. And so they go to private fundraising. And what stunned me about Arizona is it's anonymous, so far not disclosed. If I were to guess, it probably won't ever be disclosed, even though they say they say they want to. So it's anonymous donations. You know, Lynn Wood told me over the phone a few weeks ago that he donated $50,000. I, I have no way to know if that's true, or his organization donated $50,000. I have no way to know if that's true because the records aren't public. Patrick Byrne, the Overstock CEO, the ex-Overstock CEO, the Trump ally, uh, said he donated hundreds of thousands. He also said that Sidney Powell had donated hundreds of thousands. I'm not sure if Michael Flynn has gotten in on this. He may have. I might have missed it. Christina Bob, who is an anchor on One American News, she has a fundraising organization that she's running alongside her reporting job called Voices and Votes, which is an organization, a fundraising organization for Arizona that could be used for other audits. So that's Arizona. You have a bunch of these sort of influencers, Trump allies, whatever you want to call them, tapping their social networks, going to these conferences around the country saying, your dollars going right to this audit. And again, we don't know if that's true. We don't know if they're lining their pockets. We don't know if the money's going to this contractor or that contractor. And then we have some other states, uh, Pennsylvania, you just mentioned, they haven't discussed what the funding mechanism would be. In Georgia, there's a private lawsuit uh, brought by somebody named Garland Favorito, who has a, a, a non, I think it's a nonprofit, it might be, I'm not sure the exact legal status, but he's, he's raising money. So it's, it's, just, it's a hodgepodge, a, a patchwork of, of fundraising. And it's uh, it, it, it's unaccountable and it's untraceable. And, and that was the first thing um, or one of the first things. There's a, lot, there's a lot that's shady, I think, about what's going on in Arizona, obviously. But when you bring in unaccountable money by people who have an interest in the outcome, you know, Trump supporters who make who spend their days speaking to Trump supporting crowds. That's a big that's a big issue. <laughs> I mean, you've you actually can't make this bullshit up. I mean, you would think that this is on a show like a house of cards where you you just laugh about it and you say it's just not possible that people are that gullible and that stupid to believe anything that's coming out of Trump and sycophants mouths. I mean, the notion the notion that he's coming back to power, that there's going to be some you know, change in a determination um, that they're going to find ballots that were destroyed. And so, I mean, the whole thing, is, which brings me to, to my next question, because I truly don't understand what's supposed to happen after the audit is concluded. Is the idea that they're going to find some massive fraud and throw the state you know, in doubt or Back Trump then, and then he'd be reinstated. They would have to re do a re um, an electoral recount of some sort. You know, who's supposed to make all of this happen? Mm. I mean, I stood before the House Oversight Committee two years ago, and I know Donald Trump like I know the back of my hand. Sadly, I spent too much time with Frankenstein because I am Frankenstein's monster when it comes to this, and I take full responsibility for that. And I say to myself, I know Donald's personality. He's so fragile. His ego is so fragile that he could not handle a loss to somebody like Joe Biden. In fact, Donald Trump couldn't handle a loss to anyone. And the notion that he's one of the few presidents that didn't win a second term 
to him is so damaging, again, to that fragile. And Donald, I hope you're listening because you have a fucking fragile ego, my brother. All right? You really do. And instead, I knew to say that my biggest fear is if he loses the election, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. I said it. And Mm -hmm. now today everybody quotes it as if it's right out of the Bible. But it's fact because I know the man. And it's why most of the predictions that I make, even in the book Disloyal, or I talk about on my Twitter account, uh, you know, now I'm doing some of this live Instagram stuff. I'm having fun with all of these followers. But what drives me crazy is that these people, that there's still 25% of the Republican Party that are so devoted to Donald Trump, it goes back to his comment that he could kill someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And these people would allow it. So explain to me, again, who's supposed to make all of this happen for him? That it's a really tough question to answer. Certainly, he's not getting back in the White House. I mean, so the, the question for me is, what do they want? I mean, if you hear people, the advocates for these audits say, they want these audits because one, people don't believe the results and they want to have people have confidence in the election, which I think is a bit of a smokescreen. You know, you can't put all the responsibility on your people after you lie to them for believing a lie. Right. Um, the second thing is they, they want to have better election. They say they want to have better elections in the future. So they need to know what happened uh, again. I mean, there are certified accredited auditors that election officials use all the time. The sort of stuff we're seeing in Arizona, Pennsylvania, that's not what that is. Uh, It's politicized. It's run by folks who have pushed conspiracy theories. It's funded by folks who have pushed conspiracy theories. The the cynical read on this is what Doug Mastriano, the state senator from Pennsylvania, told Steve Bannon. And, And the reason that we covered that interview in the first place, which is he said what they're doing in Arizona is the blueprint every time there's a contested election. And, you know, you can read that however you want. You know, maybe he really believes they're doing a great job in Arizona and he wants to have great audits whenever there's a a dispute. But if you look at what's happening in Arizona, they're they're not doing a great job. I mean, the procedures are all over the place. The funding is anonymous, like I said. So then uh, the sort of cynical take that I, I don't like to play pundit too much is that, but you could read it as every time somebody loses... They can throw a fit and demand an audit and a demand an audit on their own terms. And the blueprint for that is Arizona. You know, Trump lost. He riled up his supporters there, the state Senate. And uh, I mean, it might not offer a lot of hope legally to him. He might, you know, enjoy the, the fantasy of becoming president again. But for races that are a little bit closer, that have a little bit less attention on them, especially local races or, you know, uh, there's a million different possibilities of someone losing an election, cynically lying about what happened and then saying, I want these auditors. And actually, Doug Mastriano, uh, he uh, uh, initiated or he he pushed for a recount for a county in Pennsylvania and the uh, contractor there, Wake TSI, who was paid for by Sidney Powell's group, is one of the contractors in Arizona now. So uh, it's difficult to say exactly what they're aiming for, who they think will carry this out if, if uh, their results, uh, you know, as in doubt as they will be, show any sort of supposed fraud. But 
from the outside, it's, it, it looks like they want a blueprint for contesting elections. And, and that's what this ends up being. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us, Blue Chew. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer-lasting erections. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablet helped men achieve harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of erectile dysfunction. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problem here. Blue Chew Sildenafil and Tadalafil tablets are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the United States of America, and they prepare and ship direct, so it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Try BlueChew free when you use your promo code COIN at checkout. Just pay $5 in shipping. That's BlueChew.com promo code COIN to receive your first month free. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. Well, Matt, one of the things that I said to you early on is I would like to see reporters just be more blunt about what is reality here, Mm. right? So let me just give you, like, what's reality here. There was no election stolen from Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. He lost because he's a fucking asshole. (laughs) And I would put that in the opening line of my paper. On top of that, Donald Trump actually committed um, a a criminal act by contacting Rathensberger mm-hmm. and asking him to find 17,801, whatever the number was, 18,701, I forget the exact number, but asking him to find a very specific number of votes that would now have him winning that specific state, right? So is he not interfering in the election, as I said, that he would do anything in order to win? Because that's what he is, this narcissistic sociopath that he would end up doing whatever it takes, and so on. So, hence, of course, we have that lawsuit now pending in Georgia. Mm. And I'm shocked again that this 25% or 30% of this Republican Party still believes the same thing. When they showed, somebody showed a box, a cardboard box underneath a desk that said Trump ballots, right? And then it was marked like, you know, to destroy. You're right. Anybody that's going to steal ballots and destroy them are going to put it in a box underneath a table that has just four legs to it, right? That says destroy Trump ballots, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And anybody who would believe it, we actually have bridges to sell you here in the city and state of New York. I mean, it's just a joke. And then you start talking about better elections. You could not have had a more legitimate election than in this one. Why? Because everybody was looking. 
We are that divided as a country that everybody was looking at the guy next to him to make sure that they weren't doing something improper because Republicans don't trust Democrats and Democrats don't trust Republicans. So where, where, what is it, again, that I'm missing? And then, on top of everything, somehow, again, the Democrats allow the Republicans to take control of a whole series of voting machines into their own custody mm. In order to examine them, because they want to double check and ensure that the ballots that were cast for Donald Trump didn't end up as being cast for Joe Biden. Now, how do you know that they didn't put some sort of a poison pill into the mechanics of these voting machines? If I was now the voting machine company, that's the ones that are suing Sidney Powell Mm -hmm. and Rudy and others for $1.2 billion. I take those machines and I would scrap them. Because as far as I'm concerned, anybody that puts a vote in there has to the first thing in their mind believe that the machine is tainted. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever release a machine that's all electronics to worry about that somebody put in some sort of a poison pill that they can now control the outcome of those machines? I don't know. To me, it's crazy. But yeah. let me ask you this question, Matt. As you speak to sources in law enforcement and justice, as well as folks on the far right, do you sense that things are heading towards some kind of a violent reprise of January 6th, right? Maybe it's this August reinstatement nonsense. They're going to use that as some sort of a date. But with so many people out there believing these lies to be true, and now what looks like a coordinated effort to flush this latest conspiracy through social media, they're seeking some kind of an end game. There has to always be some kind of an end game. Now, for Trump, it appears to make a smoke screen as these indictments are beginning to heat up. But the crazies seem just as agitated. Where does this all end? And are we looking at another violent summer from the right? The one thing I think about January 6th that distinguished it was that you had Trump recruiting people to one place at one time. But not only that. You had six months of lying about the election. And in addition to that, you had two dress rehearsals. You had a rally in November, pro-Trump rally that he drove his motorcade through, whipped up the crowd. You had the pro-Trump rally in D.C. in December that he he drove, he uh, flew his helicopter over, Marine One. He whipped up the crowd. He was tweeting all about it. The White House was tweeting about it. And then you had him in January say, it will be a wild time. You better be there. The White House was telling people that he was going to speak ahead of time. I think it was actually about probably around 24, 48 hours ahead of time. A White House spokesperson told me Donald Trump is speaking. And the effect of that was if you're anywhere near Washington, D.C., if you're within a 24 hours drive, you can get there in time to see Donald Trump speak. So the the effect of all, all of that was was Trump leveraged everything he had to get people in the city that day. Uh, so. To see another attack like January 6th, in my opinion, you know, speculating here, but you would have to have some tor- some type of dynamic that brought a ton of Trump supporters into one place at one time and whipped them up into the kind of condition that they were in on January 6th. But there's a bunch of other options that I think about just as often. And, you know, it includes, you know, one off terrorist attacks. It includes all sorts of things. The, the, the dynamic that I think doesn't get enough attention is less headline grabbing, but it's almost worse, which is that in every county, in every state, in this entire country, you have Trump supporters who are frustrated and violent and think they don't live in a democracy anymore. 
and they're getting involved locally, right? So imagine January 6th, but divide it up across the country and take away all the news coverage, right? And let it metastasize like a cancer for however long this goes on. And it's difficult as a reporter to cover that sort of stuff because we can't be in every place at every time. And also local newspapers are dying. But that's the dynamic that I think about a lot, which is the energy behind January 6th is still out there. And what are people doing with it? Whether this comes to a head in a, in a single unified attack, I, I do think January 6th was pretty unique. But then again, it, you know, uh, we could see it again. I, I think that's definitely a possibility. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you because and I don't believe that Donald even has to whip them up. I believe right now they're all teed up and just waiting for the signal because they're ready to go. They're ready to go on a, on a moment's drop as far as I'm concerned. And that's what makes this whole thing so dangerous. And I would say to all of my listeners uh, up and through August, and I'm not trying to be an alarmist. You see something, say something. You call law enforcement. You see a group of people out there in the middle of a field training, throwing grenades, throwing rocks instead of grenades, right? Buying a whole slew of these, you know, AR-15s or these assault rifles or large quantities of ammunition. They're not doing. Listen, you do not need a hundred bullets to take down a deer. Let's just be let's just be plain and simple about that. So I say right now we all have to be vigilant with our eyes and. Information, because as any federal agent will tell you, the best thing that they have is those of us out there with eyes and ears and the information that we provide them. That's how much of this stuff ends up, you know, um, getting known to law enforcement. And I think we really all have to be vigilant. But, you know, Matt, as we're winding down the hour, I have just one last question for you. The God and Country Conference that was attended by Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn this past Memorial Day is said to be connected to QAnon. Now, but since there's no phone directory or QAnon website that you can go to, there's actually no way to specifically say who is and who is not a member. And that being said, there are, you know, there are ranks that seem to be growing within this, with this, this organization or whatever you want to call it. There was that poll in the New York Times that said 15% of Americans believed in the tenets of the group. I mean, right? And there are sitting members of Congress now that are advocating QAnon positions. Are you hearing anything from your sources that indicates coordination on these efforts between QAnon and Trump? And putting aside the conspiracy for a moment, he sees the realization of a vast group of supporters who may literally kill for him. Discuss with me what you're hearing on the ground and how all of this connects together. I... I don't see I mean, there's different ways you can you can describe coordination. I think when you see folks like Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn crossing the country, um, setting up conferences, selling out churches or auditoriums or whatever, that is a form of top down leadership. I mean, these are folks that are celebrities within this community and wherever they go, people follow. Uh, you know, Trump said some very flattering things about QAnon. I'm not I don't have any reporting about his connections to these recent conferences to that example, for example, where uh, Michael Flynn endorsed a coup. But I do think there's a network that's developed over years of of leadership. The, 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 the QAnon uh, community, I think, uh, was was definitely impacted in the aftermath of January 6th because there was a lot of social media crackdown thousands upon thousands of accounts getting deleted and sort of uh, people getting banned for 
promoting violence. For a long time, social media platforms let that stuff go. I mean, they just watched a, a violent community forming and using their, their platforms on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it was, without much interference. So that did impact the spread of that ideology a little bit. But as you see with like, exactly with that poll that you just cited, it's it's basically a small religion. I mean, there's 15% of the country or whatever it is that really think that, you know, pedophiles run the world and that they ought to take, you know, some of them believe that they ought to take the law in their own hands or that the military ought to. So whether or not there's direct connection to Trump, and, and I don't want to speculate, he certainly benefits from it. He certainly praised them in the past. But more generally, I mean, it's a population of folks that, you know, by nature of, of, of what they believe is pretty easy to exploit. I mean, that's the thing about a conspiracy theory like this one is that if you have someone up there like Sidney Powell or Mike Flynn who claims to have the answers and claims to have insider knowledge, which is what QAnon is based off of, it's easy to direct a crowd. And I think that's what at least alarms me about about QAnon is, you know, it's it's one thing to believe some crazy stuff you heard on the Internet, but it, it's another to be willing you know, to, to get violent for it or to support a military coup of all things. Um, so I think the potential is there for this to be exploited even further. And, and there is definitely a class of people of, of Trump supporters, loyalists that, that have taken that opportunity to, to put themselves at the top of that, that, that environment. And, uh, I, I, I think that's a, they're just like politicians. They should be held accountable for what they do with that power. And and when Michael Flynn, you know, talked about a coup, uh, it, it, obviously it's beyond the pale, but it's hard to know what to do with that. You know, <laughs> I, I wonder what you thought when you heard him saying those words, because, uh, I mean, obviously he called for martial law after the election. Same thing there. First of all, I was dis I was disgusted. Yeah, I was I disgusted mean, by him as a lieutenant general, yeah. as somebody who's devoted his life, you know, to the service of this country. But remember, it's not just Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell. You have Don Jr. Mm -hmm. You have Rudy. You have Ted Cruz. You have Matt Gates. You have Josh Hawley. You have Lynn Wood, and so many others all out there. And they, each one of them goes on to these various different talking circuits, espousing the same bullshit nonsense. Look, there are many things that you can say, ah, you know, maybe it's possible. I can see it. But seriously, that our representatives in government are all cannibals, <laughs> pedophiles, and so on. And it's this this whole ritual that I, 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 I don't I don't get it. I, I just don't I don't get it. I mean, it, um, it's a lie big enough to justify political violence. I think that's what it comes down to. You needed to make up a lie that's so offensive that it justifies whatever you want. And that's what QAnon has become. It's a pretense at this point. So and you're right, it's, it's elected officials that have taken it upon themselves to exploit people's beliefs for their own ends. And, and that that's what it comes down to for me. What, Whatever the beliefs were, if it justifies you, you know, taking control of the military or proposing crackdowns on uh, whatever, free speech or uh, imprisoning people without due process, that's the bottom line for me. Whatever they believe is secondary to that. Yeah, I agree. And Matt, let me thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Stay tuned. I'm definitely going to ask you to come back because we have a whole lot more to talk about past August when this bullshit lie 
right? We'll call this line number 35,403 of Donald Trump, um, you know, turns out to be exactly what it is, pure and absolute nonsense. So we'll talk to you again, you know, after this August date. And I want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, sure. And thanks so much for having me, Michael. And if I could plug one thing, if, if, if your listeners, you know, we've talked a lot about the political violence and its place in our society. There they are, uh, our eyes and ears on the ground, like you said. So if you see anything, uh, you know, certainly if it, if it rises to the level of law enforcement, let them know. But if not, uh, let us know at talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. We're, we're really eager to hear from people about how this is affecting their communities. So uh, I really appreciate uh, the chance to speak to you. And it was great meeting you. Matt, thank you again. And now for today's mea culpa. My conversation with Matt Shuham is a reminder that despite the lunacy of these people's beliefs, they themselves are playing a deadly serious game. In their minds, it is 1776 and the nation is at war. The election has been stolen from them. And it is up to them to wrest back democracy from the clutches of a corrupt and evil cabal. There is no middle ground with these folks. They won't be coming to reason anytime soon or be willing to accept an alternative point of view. They're absolutionists, purists, and the core of MAGA far-right base that Trump and the GOP is going to need to turn out again in record numbers in both 2022 and 2024. Their continued radicalization is a key component to keeping them engaged with the party. But it's also a ticking fucking time bomb of epic proportions. Let's face the facts. We got lucky on January 6th that what happened wasn't far worse. Imagine if those first hardened crowds had actually found the lawmakers for whom they were searching. Hang Mike Pence would have been far more than a sick chant. We would have witnessed a river of blood and possibly death as these very sick and deranged fucking individuals carried out their orders. Luckily, we dodged the bullet. Through a combination of incompetence, bad luck, that's not ours, and frankly timing, they largely missed their targets and wound up more confused than dangerous. But it's my belief that what we witnessed was just a warm-up. What happens the next time when they're better trained, better prepared, and better armed? We don't know when or where it will happen next. But we need to be prepared. Until the GOP drops Trump and the extremist fringe of the party, we are all in danger from their actions. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. Hey, movie lovers. Who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. 
No signups, no fees, no contracts, ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. This is my mayor, 